Here's a theory. Maybe I had not really been broken this whole time. Maybe I had been a human, flawed and still growing, but full of light nonetheless. Stephanie Fu. Bending Not Breaking, Season 7, a bonus episode. Welcome back to Bending Not Breaking. I'm Sunshine. I'm Ben. And we have got some fun stuff to talk about today. We are, we are fun. taking a quick... Fun a, stuff. Fun, all right, so hold on. Let me reword that <laughs> because it is not... The, the conversation will be productive and enjoyable, which I find to be fun because I like to learn. Yeah, me too. <laughs> the content might be a more challenging than that the word fun maybe not be the best descriptor. So, but we are taking a pause on our traditional episodic structure um, to, to talk about the series as a whole because we have a wonderful guest with us today. And it, honestly, uh, we didn't want to just keep that person to one episode. We wanted to be able to talk about all the fun, not fun, all the things that are there in existence in the series. Uh, and so, Ben, who do we have with us today? So y'all, I have recently been binging all of the Witch Please episodes. And if you haven't heard of Witch Please, it is a critical theory podcast specifically focusing on Harry Potter. Uh, and it's fascinating. And I highly recommend it if you enjoy thinking about critically thinking about things, especially from a Harry Potter perspective. But I was listening to one episode in particular and Addie Marians was the guest talking about trauma and PTSD in the Harry Potter series. And I was like, whoa, y'all, there's a lot of trauma and PTSD in Cora. So I was like, we got to have Addie. And Addie uses she, her pronouns. She's a psychologist who earned her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Minnesota, a lifelong self-proclaimed nerd. She likes thinking deeply about media, cooking, baking food. Do you notice the similarities between she and myself? And likes to cook from around the world. Crochets blankets. I also crochet. Celebrates the milestones of her friends' lives. And likes long walks with her dog. Addie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. It is such a delight to be here. We are so glad you're here. This is going to be a huge conversation. And, you know, I was doing some research on this outside of like canon, and I was looking at all of the articles that were referencing this out in the wild. And, you know, there's just, I'm going to read a few of them for funsies. You know, articles are, some of them are clever and some of them are not, but like <laughs> one is Cora's like PTSD. And another is an analytical essay on Cora's trauma. The Psychology of Inspirational Women, What the Legend of Korra Taught Me About PTSD, Avatar Korra is a Hero for Mental Health Representation, Legend of Korra Navigates PTSD with Grace, and then Legend of Korra Shows How to Navigate PTSD While Fighting Injustice. So there's a lot of content out there, and people are writing about this, and I'm really excited to kind of pick your brain about this topic and The Legend of Korra also. I want to read every single one of those articles now. 
<laughs> right. So before we kind of like go into the, the meat of the conversation, because that's where I want to go, because I also enjoy conversations like this, um, is I want to know a little bit more about you. So what, what makes you, you, why, well, how are you in the world when you're not talking about these things? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful question. Um, I think my instinct to, is to sort of describe myself by my communities. Mm. So um, I grew up in a very close-knit Jewish family where the expectation was kids learned how to talk with the adults about, about important things. So um, I had very strong op- opinions as a kindergartner trying to understand politics, and my Love family that. very lovingly guided me in how to have those conversations and how to deepen my understandings. Um, And then I went to college in Virginia, where a lot of my worldview growing up in the suburbs of New York City was really radically shifted. And I learned that there was a real life outside the bubble I had been living in. In college was the when the Black Lives Matter um, movement began, and I, um, I was also on Tumblr. And between the two of those things, I really got radicalized, became passionate about social justice, um, which was also a core value of my family growing up, um, and sort of really stepped into my own critical analysis of that. Um, in college, I became really passionate about psychology. And right after I graduated, I started my PhD program, again, moving to a totally different place. Minnesota is very different from the suburbs of New York, um, most notably the winter, but also culturally. Um, <laughs> and through through college and grad school, I've made really amazing friendships that I think make me who I am today. Wow, I love that. Thank you for kind of giving us some insight into just who you are. That's And I love that you think about who you are in terms of the relationships you have with other people. I think that that's a, a, a beautiful way of seeing the connections in the world. So I appreciate that. So we, we know a little bit about you. What about your relationship with the Avatarverse? What is your history with this whole world that we're kind of bringing you into? So I did watch all of Avatar The Last Airbender. I have very clear memories of watching it after Shabbat dinners at my grandmother's house. I feel like maybe that means it aired on Fridays or there were reruns on Fridays. Um, So I really loved the original series. Um, I would watch it with my younger brother. It was like a very, like looking back, I have like a lot of tenderness in my heart around it. I have never watched Legend of Korra though. It came out (laughs) when I was in college And by then I was very busy and started to realize that um, TV isn't my preferred medium of like taking in things. And so I get like I was on Tumblr at the time. I I saw a lot of the online discourse (laughs) about it, Um, but it wasn't something I had watched until I got connected with you all. (laughs) We've done some good in the world. That's all. Just just a little... Oh, it's so good. It's so it good. It is. Oh, my. The, I cried. I cried. <laughs> and that's just the limited exposure you've had, right? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things when we pitched this to you was we really want to talk about 
trauma in in this season but also like the the context for that requires that you have some context from the prior season so just for our our listeners can you like help them understand what what did you kind of pick and piece together to to prepare for today's episode so this is where you're all gonna learn i'm a little of an overachiever um (laughs) the wonderful host sent me um links for summaries of all the seasons So I read summaries of all the seasons, and then you highlighted five episodes that you thought would be helpful um, for me to watch. So I watched all of those in chronological order that they aired in. (laughs) And then um, I am a huge fan of Marco Shiro, and they, I don't know if you know of them, they uh, did episode by episode recaps of Korra and also of Avatar as part of the Mark Watches universe. Um, they also did a reading, and I that's how I discovered them through, they read Twilight, and then they read everything by my favorite author, Tamora Pierce. Um, okay. And they're also a published author doing incredible, incredible work, um, now writing, I think, within, like, the Percy Jackson universe. Like, oh, cool. They're really incredible. Their book, Anger is a Gift, is great. But I read all of their um episode by episode summaries to try and make sure I had a vague sense of what was going on in the in-between because if there was one thing I learned is that there's a lot of politics going on in Cora yes. and jumping into like an episode a season two episodes a season um you you need more context mm-hmm. absolutely so it sounds like you very much prepared for this conversation, which means that I I just know the the listeners are kind of frothing at the bit, kind of ready to hear what you I prepared might. more for this than I did for my oral prelim exams in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we gave you enough time. That was that worked out really well. <laughs> uh just let it be known that we we only said definitely watch these and then these are a great context and then took that and ran with it. So I'm I'm really grateful that you ran with it this is what happens when you go to grad school (laughs) I understand okay so what what I'd love to do is kind of just sit in uh, your classroom for a minute and hear from you uh, about our, our lens today which to just reiterate we're talking about trauma and then specifically PTSD and then kind of learning about what that is and what does it look like? How do we identify it? Um, and I'm just going to kind of kick it off to you and we might interrupt you with questions, but like have at it. <laughs> awesome. So I think trauma and PTSD are really interesting to consider as lenses because they're very related and they are not the same. I think when we think about trauma, we can think sort of in many theoretical ways about it. We can look at literature and see humans' understandings that like people go through things and it hurts them and it changes them, um, sort of recorded throughout history. Whereas PTSD is a very specific understanding of people rooted in a medical model, right? It's a diagnosis. And that gives it a very specific framework. And I think what's then particularly interesting when thinking about applying these ideas to media is how transferable they are. So PTSD by 
its definition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, defines what trauma is. And so PTSD requires trauma to exist. First, thinking about trauma, one of the real definitions I like is rooted in where the word comes from. So it comes from a Greek word, I believe, meaning wound. And so I think thinking about trauma broadly outside of specific medical models as wounding, like especially like emotional, spiritual, mental wounding can give us a very big picture of what trauma can be. Um, PTSD specifically comes out of um, a long history of looking at the after effects of soldiers returning from war and seeing that there's something going on for a lot of these folks. Um, Before PTSD, there were diagnoses like shell shock and gross stress reaction. PTSD came about in the third DSM. Um, and was really put in after a lot of effort by activists um, following the Vietnam War. So this is and in the seventies-ish, eighties-ish, seventy-eighties. Okay, yeah, so that's not that far back, frankly. No, like there's a whole lot of people who are older than PTSD as a diagnosis. Yeah, um, which is sort of wild to think about. Um, and in each. A time a new DSM was published, the definition of trauma for PTSD has changed. And it's become in some ways more rigid, in some ways less rigid. Um, a lot like in the earliest ones, there's a lot of like something that a normal person wouldn't go through, and now it's bad. And Presuming there is a normal person. Yeah, and presuming that trauma is uncommon. And I think one of the things we've really started to learn in psychology is that it is deeply common. Um, I think even just looking at sort of pretty recent definitions of trauma as applied for PTSD, it's something like 80 to 90% of the population will experience a trauma. Only like 10-ish percent overall will then develop PTSD, but it's still a lot of people experience these things. And I think that's an important thing to lift up because I, I feel like uh, anecdotally that we hear a lot of if you don't have something like PTSD, then I don't necessarily feel like your trauma is valid. Like it wasn't actually trauma, mm-hmm. right? That if you don't have PTSD, that then you didn't go, then you didn't have real trauma. Can you speak a little bit about that and, and how that manifests in culture? In the yeah. small time that we have, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I think, again, this is one of the real problems with a very medicalized model and that most, first of all, PTSD is very unique as a diagnosis. Most diagnoses don't require an instigating event. There is no requirement in depression that this happens and then you get depressed. PTSD requires something to happen. So that makes it very unique to begin with. And I think then it becomes a marker of what happened to you was bad enough, was so bad that this this is the emotional fallout. And there are other stress and trauma-related disorders, which is what the category PTSD is in the most recent DSM. And even the names of them 
sort of sound less real. So it's like adjustment disorder, other specified stress and trauma disorder. And I think another component of that is often PTSD is what's used for um, disability, right? That if you have PTSD, you can get compensated because of what you've been through a lot. So um, I probably should have said this earlier. Anything I say only represents my views. It does not represent the views of my employer or the federal government. Um, (laughs) A lot of veterans will try to um, get service-connected disability for their PTSD. And again, that's like a sort of marker of suffering and of compensation and um, restitution. Is that the word I'm looking for? Okay. (laughs) And so it becomes part of a system that is exclusionary, right? And we we know that systems are... um, propped up by other systems of power, like racism, like sexism. Um, So even in the history of understanding PTSD, it came about because of people looking at the impact of war on soldiers and not necessarily looking at the impacts of rape on um, survivors. What's Also then interesting is a lot of the research on treatment of PTSD, instead of coming from veterans, does come from research trying to treat survivors of sexual abuse and rape. Yeah, so one of the things that's coming up for me there is who benefits from restricting who can be diagnosed with PTSD, right? And Mm -hmm. You know, when the diagnosis emerges from trying to name the experience of soldiers that are coming back from war and in a, you know, quote, patriotic country in which, you know, war is also like this, you know, super cool thing. It seems as though how do we support our soldiers, but also limit other people from claiming what they could benefit by claiming their experience as PTSD. Am I like, does that feel? Yes. I think also what I think about is our obsession as a society with categories Yeah. um, that either you have something or you don't, we don't necessarily tend to think on spectrums. That is like a big area where research in psychology is going looking at continuums of psychopathology and recognizing that like there's a real arbitrary nature to a diagnosis that there is some research to say at this level of symptoms this is when like it's significant enough to be causing incredible impairment in your life and there isn't necessarily a reason why it's two from this category two from this category instead of one or three Yeah. And on the one hand, as someone who does a lot of treatment, not all like there's a reason a stepped model of care exists, that not everyone needs the same level of treatment, giving the level of treatment that people need um, means people have more time, means people aren't getting more care than they need. And I do really see how categories can mean people don't get the care they need. There's incredible omissions and what would count as a criterion A, like massive error, which is 
criterion A is the definition of trauma in um, the DSM. So like what counts as a air quotes criterion A trauma has a lot of omissions. It omits things like emotional abuse, like racial trauma, and that then gatekeeps who is able to get this diagnosis and who is able to get certain benefits because of that diagnosis. They can still get treatment. Like you can use other diagnoses and give the exact same treatment and that might have impacts on what forms of support. Yeah. Yeah. Support being like, can you pay for it? Um, So what I'm hearing for takeaways before we transition into this next segment is that the history of trauma is still like very much with (laughs) it, very recent um, in terms of how it has emerged and evolved and it is still very evolving very quickly. And also I'm hearing that being diagnosed specifically or not diagnosed does not necessarily mean your trauma is quote criterion a like you, your trauma might be horrific and you might have a lot of symptoms and experiences of what people might call PTSD. And also you might not be diagnosed with it because of the way the system works and how it's your history. I like, I have definitely had situations in my life where I have a, a client, a patient who, um, meets all of the criteria of PTSD very significantly is experiencing a lot of impairment in their life. And I'm sitting with my supervisor going, can we use this diagnosis? The the index trauma doesn't, is it criterion A? And oftentimes we go, you know what? Like we're going to do it. Like this person needs this care and it feels more ethical to give them this diagnosis than to give them like an other specified diagnosis just because our understandings as a society rooted in racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism has decided this specific experience shouldn't be traumatizing. You just, just when, when you initially talked about trauma, you used you went back to the original uh, meaning of wounds, right? And so, mm-hmm. tell me if this is a good analogy because well, as you were speaking, I it starts to think of there's a the many wounds can happen, and the severity of those wounds, depending on where they are, what they are, is going to be vastly different, and the need for care is going to be vastly different. Um, but also, in the same sense, wounds in context are also important because a concert pianist getting a cut on the hand versus someone else who maybe not use their hands professionally, like that is the same wound, but the effect it's going to have on someone may drastically be different as well, based off the context of their life. Yes. And I think what's really interesting to think about is um, a previous definition of trauma. So DSM-4, one of the criteria for trauma was that you experienced like horror and helplessness in the moment. And again, like that is something that's very context-based, right? Like if your livelihood is using your hands and your hands get injured because someone attacks you, you might feel so much more disempowerment in the moment than someone who has a very intellectual profession and maybe can type with one hand while they recover. So Again, I think this comes down to the challenges of categorization that 
There is so much that is subjective about experiences. You can have two people who go through the same experience and one person finds it incredibly traumatic and the other person doesn't. And there we can try and think about like objective, again, scare quotes, (laughs) like ways to define trauma. And we lose something because we will never be able to objectively describe people's subjective experiences. Yeah. So this is complex and people who claim to know everything about this seem to be lying. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I think that for me- like with many things, the more people realize they don't know as much and that there's a lot of nuance and that decisions have to be made and they're not always easy to make or fun to make. Um, one thing I've ta- I've discussed with supervisors was what we call the ick factor mm. of like how icky does this decision feel? Yeah, um, <laughs> which is a like very real in a lot of clinical yeah. situations. It's like yeah. okay, I feel a little ick, but it's better than the level of ick I would feel if I didn't give this diagnosis or when doing a safety assessment. Um, and so I think the people I know who are like deeply rooted in PTSD and as research recognize the utility of doing things in a certain way and are also always thinking about if there's a better way to do things. Yeah. So I have a a segue for us and I want to think about it from this perspective. You used a a term earlier that I don't think our listeners know and I'd, I'd love for you to help define it which is the index trauma. And I'd love for you to kind of give us what that is. And then can you take us to what your perception of Cora's index trauma might be as we proceed into talking about dun, 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 the legend of Cora as we start talking about this cool stuff? Yeah, so index trauma is language used in PTSD to describe the traumatic event that precedes and therefore leads to the development of post-traumatic symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is a, a, an interesting term because it does sort of imply that people experience a singular event that wounds them. And I think we can n- notice a name that a lot of people grew up in incredibly traumatic environments or have an incredibly traumatic series of events happen to them. And very much rooted in the understanding of PTSD is that there is an acute singular event Mm -hmm. that um, leads to the development of these symptoms. Yeah. So in your understanding of Cora and what you have seen and what you've kind of grappled with in her experience through the show, do we see an index trauma? And then what does that, what does that mean for us? So you gave me some wonderful episodes to watch where a lot of really awful things happen to Cora. <laughs> so many bad things happen like, to So Cora. many bad things. And the writers were incredibly mean to Cora right? throughout the series. Oh my gosh. And I, ha- I have a lot of thoughts about how I like, how I think I think about Cora. Um, but I think for me, the thing that feels most like the index trauma, if I were somehow transported into the avatar universe with all of my knowledge as a psychologist and was doing therapy with her as I think it would be the experience with, and you're going to have to tell me if I get the name right. Is it Zaheer, the guy with the the poison? That's right. Yeah. I 
I think we can see of all of her other experiences as sensitizing her, as potentially uh, enabling her to develop some maladaptive coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. or even coping mechanisms that were adaptive up until a certain point. And then with Zaheer, I think that's where we see a lot of the more extreme symptoms really starting to show up. That's what shows up in her flashbacks. And usually when you're working with a client and you're trying to determine the index trauma, the event that is causing the most intrusive memories and thoughts, which Mm -hmm. is one of the criteria of PTSD, is the trauma you go for. Yeah. So, you know, like going back to the beginning we see with Cora, you know, we have Cora grew up outside the city, kind of away from the the big and hullabaloo of city life, comes to Republic City and immediately is thrown into her responsibilities as the Avatar and is confronting Amon and the Equalists. And I I was thinking like, this is one of the biggest moments for her because like when they take her bending, there is like there's a moment where it is implied she is contemplating suicide here at the end of the show. And she's standing at the edge of a cliff and she's pretty much said all the, the key words to make us be like, is this what's, what's going on here? And there's an intervention, right? Her past lives intervene. And it's uh, one of the most beautiful scenes in the series. But, you know, when I think about like the difference between you know, the first trauma versus the index trauma. Like this is a moment that she came back to once or twice, but over the years, she doesn't think about this too often. But after this moment with Zaheer, she does go back to this moment. And she all like Zaheer seems to trigger that and all the other things that she went through. And so I, I guess that's helpful for me because... Can I even, can I interrupt you here? I also think about the amount of time the show lingers on certain experiences. And again, I did not watch all of the episodes. So correct me if I'm wrong. Her, her bending comes back pretty quickly. Like there's an intervention where she regains her bending relatively quickly. And I think that's, in deep contrast to the amount of time she has to spend in recovery after the experience with Zaheer. And I think in a way that's the show also cueing us that like, yeah, that was a really awful experience. And it's a different kind of awful experience than the experience with Zaheer. Mm. So time is a factor here to consider. Yeah, Well, and that's again, um, that's built into the diagnosis of PTSD it has to last your symptoms have to last for a month after the traumatic event Mm -hmm. I will say with Cora I sort of don't want to be super rigid to the definition of PTSD because it's a totally different universe like people's brains and bodies might work completely differently there's a whole different cosmology and I think thinking about her own experience of the event one clearly lingers with her longer and I think that is a key sign of how much it is impacting her yeah so one of the questions this brings up for me because um we talked a little bit about there being a singular event but sometimes there's multiple traumas so Cora 
goes through multiple traumas, right? Mm -hmm. Do we tend to see that folks become more resilient the more trauma they go through? Do we see that it actually builds on itself and it makes it that much tougher to heal after multiple traumas? Or is it super dependent on, it depends on what the trauma is. Sorry, I'm laughing because resilient, I did, I did my dissertation on resilience. And like I was saying with PTSD, it is one of those things where you realize you know nothing and that the <laughs> literature is incredibly messy. There's not even a single definition of resilience, whether it's an outcome, a process, a, like a trait. So I had this moment where I was like, no, resilience. <laughs> <laughs> and when I think about what multiple traumas does to a person. I think it can be dependent on both what the traumas are and what the person experiences and the support they have around them. So I would say I primarily identify as a multicultural feminist psychologist if I think about my theory of counseling. And one of the things that feminist theory of counseling says is that First of all, it doesn't like diagnoses, and it says that symptoms aren't necessarily symptoms. They're coping strategies that no longer serve you in the context you're in. And so when I think about, <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of snapping. And like, this is something that's very close to my heart, especially working with people who have experienced trauma. Because I think when we look at how people cope, having had multiple experiences of trauma, Depending on the context they're in, depending on the support they're given, are they believed when they tell people? Do they have people they think they can tell? What are their internal resources for dealing with really intense emotions? They're going to develop different coping strategies. So someone who comes from an incredibly supportive community who has deep relationships of support may experience something, have people they can tell who support them and not have too much change in their life. They're able to continue living their life. They might have strong emotions, but they know how to deal with them. They have people they can lean on when things get hard. And so multiple traumas might not impact them that much. Other people may not have that. And so they start developing things like avoiding memories of the trauma because it's just too overwhelming, which maybe then leads to using substances to cope to help push the trauma away, which then maybe leads to incre increased lack of sleep, which increases emotional um, vulnerability. And so they're still doing the best they can, but they haven't been given the skills and support to make choices that are going to help them in the long run. And when I think about Cora specifically hearing that, you know, one of the things that I, Sunshine and I have grappled with this a lot, especially as we've posted with like, you know, promoting Cora material is there's a lot of people who don't like the legend of Cora. Really? Yeah. And especially when comparing with Avatar The Last Airbender. And uh, there's a lot of uh, like deep seated, like uh, unchecked misogyny in that, I think. Mm. And one of the things that we see is Cora using coping strategies that she has developed and people are calling those coping strategies, uh, you know, nasty names because, you know, she's a girl. 
because, mm-hmm. and, and they are criticizing Korra in ways that they don't criticize Aang. And I, and, and Sunshine, you've done a little bit more work on like articulating language around this. So step in if I'm, if I'm misspeaking, but yeah, it's, it just feels like this is related to what you're saying in terms of Cora has developed coping strategies and they are uh, not appealing to, you know, people who are watching the show, but they are adaptive. They're working for her until they're not. Um, and it just they, that feels related to me. One of the most common examples, I think, of this is in Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, there's the moment where Aang snaps in the desert and snaps at his friends after Appa gets stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also moments where Kor- uh, Katara snaps at friends and snaps at the group when it comes to things around her mother's death and her potentially getting uh, try to get revenge or seek kind of justice for that. Uh, and people will say like, oh, well, Aang lost his best friend and it's Appa and we love Appa versus Korra is unkind and cruel to her friends. And um, and so you start to see that similar language work its way through fandoms on the interwebs uh, pretty regularly when it comes to the way that Korra responds to things like Korra treats her friends badly or is common, you know, is rude and uh cocky even though she's not as good and gets hurt all the time and it's her fault that she was abused by her uncle and let her let her uncle take away her connection to past lives and so there's a lot of that that still structures around current conversations in the fandoms um 10 years later so that is so interesting um because i think it really ties into the different ways um people are socialized to express emotions. I'm going to say men and women, I recognize gender is a spectrum, that there, there's a whole lot. But if we think about the differences between two of the many genders, right, men and women, men are socialized to express anger. That yeah. That is the acceptable emotion, that any other emotion is not masculine. And so I think then we as a society look at male anger and go, yeah, okay, that totally makes sense. Women are socialized to do anything but express anger. Yeah, that, but. <laughs> yeah that sadness, empathy, jo- like basically any other emotion except anger. And so when women are angry, it is a threat to the systems of sexism in the world. And so it is much more criticized, pushed back on. Yeah. And anger and irritability is a symptom of PTSD. And I think there's a real difference in the ways we treat men's anger and irritability after trauma versus women. And it sounds like that is something that plays out in the fandom, which doesn't surprise me. Fandoms, too, live in our world that is immersed in these social structures of oppression. And so that shows up in fandoms. Yeah. Well, and it's just so fascinating to me to think about how, you know, like, Part of what I see part of Cora's strategy is not not just to get angry, which she does, but also she really steps into her role as the avatar. And to me, what that looks like is diving into work and staying busy in order to avoid emotions like she hates meditating. She doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for her to find airbending. Right. It's and it seems like this is in a way a. a a similar thing where this is a coping strategy that she has been utilizing that was exacerbated by 
or continuous exposure to really difficult things, i.e. traumas throughout her, her adult life. So that is like the perfect segue into one of my um, really strong thoughts about how I want to think about Korra, which Ooh. is Korra and the Avatar as a soldier and as a warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm especially thinking about this with the two episodes you had me watch in season four, which were episodes two and four, and what it was like watching Korra's healing process with Katara versus Toph. And as I was watching that, I was like, oh, this is my growth and how I learned how to be in the room with the veterans as their psychologist in that in general, I try to be very Katara-like. I try to be very soft and gentle and affirming. And that's not effective for everyone. Some people really want and desire a little more firmness, a little more direction. Mm-hmm. I've had clients who are veterans say to me, like, the best session we had was the one where you sat me down and were like, so are you going to try and get better or not? Because if you don't believe you can get better, There's no point in keep doing this. If you're not going to change anything that you're doing, we might as well stop because I can't make you get better. And I saw so much of that in Toph. I totally don't think everything Toph did was (laughs) the best approach, but I I think that like, are you going to do it or not? Like, you have to do this. I can be directive. I think there's really something there because even in Avatar The Last Airbender with Aang, the, while it's said that the role of the Avatar is to bring harmony and balance, they sure do a whole lot of fighting, which is <laughs> chaos and disharmony. <laughs> and I wonder how thinking about the role of the Avatar as a warrior in which so many aspects of PTSD are then therefore adaptive, right? When you are in combat, hyper um, vigilance, always being on the lookout and increased startle, a drive to aggression instead of fear. All of those are things that are going to keep you alive. And all of those things are things that have kept some of my veterans alive when they were in combat or in other situations. And then you come back to the civilian world or a different a different context where you're no longer in immediate danger and all of the things that kept you alive are now actively interfering with your ability to readjust and i yeah. think we see that in cora i 100% agree <laughs> that that like is super helpful and i you know i think it's not that we're like oh wow we never thought about that because i think we have but we never put it in that language and I think that's really helpful to frame this. And so when we think about Korra and the Avatar specifically as warrior, and not every Avatar has to be the fighter. Uh, there are examples in the Avatar history that where they aren't necessarily. But when we think about it that way, it gives us a really nice uh, metaphor, perhaps, for how mm-hmm. we can adapt what we understand about PTSD to this framework. And it kind of helps us understand that. So, yeah, that's that's a really neat, neat line of thought. And I, even with what you then just said, I then think, too, about what what kind of internal 
disjunction there might be if you see yourself as a bringer of harmony and yet you keep having to fight, that's going to create cognitive dissonance. And another symptom of PTSD is negative alterations in your cognitions. You start to think badly about yourself, about other people and the world. And so if you're constantly having to do things that you don't necessarily agree with for the sake of what you are conceptualizing as the greater good, that can then be really damaging in how you view yourself in the world, especially when you are then going through these horrific events like Cora is. Yeah. One so, of the things that you lifted up earlier um, was that the ability to heal um, can be supported by having a support system or having a community around you which we see that Cora has people that care about her directly with them, but maybe don't have the skill set or knowledge to either one, recognize that she's going through so much trauma or two, getting her to a place where she is able to start that healing process. What does that look like in the show to you? Are there moments that you see that kind of like really highlight that? And then how do we replicate those positive efforts in what we do? I think one of the things that stood out to me in the show and one of the moments that made me cry the hardest was when um, Janora, right before she gets her tattoos, and (laughs) if I make myself cry talking about it, it's because I'm deeply emotional about it. And it's so good. And there's the dude who's like, I wish she'd get better quicker because like, what are we going to do without the avatar? And you like see Tenzin's face. And then in the ceremony, he's like, oh, and by the way, the air nomads are going to be nomads again. And we're going to do the job. So Cora has all of the time she needs to heal. (gasps) Oh, I wept because I think that's one of a very material thing. That's like, you do not need to do this alone. You do not need the pressure of the universe on your shoulders. There are other people who can do some of this and can take that burden from you. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of displaying resilience and community that no one person is so important that if they need time, they can't have it. One of the critiques I have of Cora's community is I think especially in season four, episode two, Cora alone, I I think they are disempowering her a little bit. I think there's a little bit of like, oh no, you are so broken that (laughs) like in some ways can be really affirming and validating. Like, yes, we see your pain. And I think some of what makes Toph so effective is she's like, you can hurt and you can still be your amazing badass self. Yeah. And I I think there's a real dialectic we can hold of like validating that someone has been through something really painful. And, and this is like very much leaning on things like dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, you can still do the things that matter to you and that you value, that your emotions don't have to dictate your actions, that you can act in alignment with your values in this moment, regardless of how you feel. And I think that's a little bit more of what we're getting from Toph than we are from Cora's wider community in the water tribe, I think Katara is doing a good job at balancing it, but I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily see the rest of her community balancing that. And, you know, that, that rings true for 
when I think about, you know, our communities at large, thinking about how most people don't know how to handle people that are experiencing anything really like mm -hmm. anything from disability to trauma to you like you name it like the general population don't have skills to to do this and so if we were to like like filter that down what are some tangible like walk away skills we might like name that um could be helpful for for our listeners and for us the first thing that comes to mind is about dialectics, that many things can be true at once, mm. that someone can be really hurting and still really capable. Um, I'm really trying to dive into my own personal education around disability justice. And I think this is one of the, the, the tenets I see, right, that in our culture, we view disability as people just not being able to do things. And that's deeply untrue, that we as a society prevent people from being able to do things because we don't yeah. give them the correct access to the support they need. Yeah. And so thinking about how, how can you create more supportive communities to help people do what they value by providing other forms of access and support and accessibility that like maybe maybe Cora can't get into the avatar state just yet and here's what she can do. So mm -hmm. really trying to hold both, that people can be hurting, people can have access limitations and physical limitations and mental limitations, and that doesn't mean they aren't fully human, that doesn't mean they aren't fully capable of doing things that matter to them, and that they don't have, they're not, they, they are valuable, like all human life is deeply inherently valuable, and mm -hmm. I think we as a society don't recognize that. Um. I think another thing is learning how to validate, like learning how to actually say like, yeah, what you went through was really awful. Um, I One thing that almost every single one of my trauma clients has said to me is, well, you know what I went through wasn't as bad as what some other people went through. Yeah. And learning how to say, okay, and what you went through was still really awful. Like it is okay for this to be hurting you is I think a skill. I think a lot of times people will disclose a trauma to someone and people try and find the silver lining. People try and make it better. Oh, well, at least he didn't X, right? Like, oh, are, are you sure that was sexual assault? Maybe, maybe he was just confused, right? We see that in discourse all the time when famous people are revealed to have assaulted someone. And so learning how to say, yeah, that was awful. I am so sorry you went through that is a real skill. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I, I reference probably the most uh, from Brene Brown's work is uh, the concept of empathic misses. Mm -hmm. And she originally had, I think, five or six. And then she recently updated them to now there are eight like very common empathic misses. And you just named two or three of them in your examples. And so for people who are curious, like if you search Brene Brown empathic misses, there's a PDF that you can, that will come up um, on Google. So I, I highly recommend checking out that PDF. It's super helpful. Yeah. Um, and validation doesn't always mean agreement, which I think is another thing to name that we can learn how to validate people, even when we maybe disagree with them. 
because fighting with people about how they perceive their experience isn't going to help them and isn't going to make them listen to you. So, so I think holding dialectics, validation, um, and maybe also like how to, how to care about community. Mm. I think I've had a lot of conversations with friends recently about how there are so many ways we are losing community that we are living increasingly individualized lives and not supposed to (laughs) like having, having people who care about us and who we care about, I think is such an antidote to so much of the terrible things we are seeing in this world. And so learning how to be part of communities, how to uplift other people, how to be excited for other people when they experience good things, yeah. I think is also a really important thing in combating trauma. Absolutely. Oh, I so agree. Because like we're a social species, right? <laughs> like we are because we are, right? There is right. no like I without other people. Um, and it, like structurally, we are continually losing access to communal communal spaces and how that makes it harder and harder to then organize, to push back against oppression, against fascism. And what I think it is <clears throat> important to find ways to be part of community, to engage in community action, to create a more just world, because part of why trauma happens is because of injustice and oppression. And if we had less injustice and impression, there are certain traumas that maybe wouldn't exist and other traumas that would be less traumatic because people would have the supports they need. Like I'm thinking about hurricanes, right? In a very wealthy area, a hurricane might happen and people are supported, people are cared for. It might feel less traumatic. Whereas in other areas where there's no support, people die. And that is so, can be so much more traumatic. As we talk about that community too, I, I think about Cora alone, Cora, like mm-hmm. that very much like uh, <laughs> almost removing oneself for the fear of the harm we may cause others. Um, and, and so is, where's that balance between take time to reflect and, and meditate and spend time with yourself and learn about yourself versus isolating yourself uh, and how that may affect a heal- the healing process? So feeling detached and isolated from others is a symptom of PTSD. Feeling like you just can't connect with other people, emotional numbing, not being able to feel positive feelings like happiness and love are all symptoms of PTSD. And I think, again, there's this balance, right? Like look inward, understand yourself, but also sometimes we can't understand ourselves without other people. Right. There's a reason some of the things that's most effective about therapy is that relationship between the therapist and the client, that there is something so powerful about connection because it can lead to new understandings and growth. Um, And so I think the balance is not isolation. If there are ways of engaging in inwardness and reflection that aren't isolating you, that aren't preventing you from feeling connected that's important um i had another train of thought can you ask your question again so i can see if i can refine it yes so uh, where's the balance between self-reflection and uh and spending time with oneself away from others versus isolation specifically referring to Coralone Mm -hmm. when we see her leave the water tribe 
uh, and then really not tell people who she is and really try to navigate the next six months of her journey just getting in fighting rings and and walking from town to town and what that looks like for us as we try to heal. Yeah. So I think this is an instance where Cora is trying to make a good decision for herself and she is limited in how she is making that, right? The, clearly the environment of the water tribe is not helping her progress to the next stage in her healing and recovery that she wants to. And she recognizes that she needs to change her environment to see if she can unlock something new for herself. I think the ways we see her then engaging in isolation and in a, another symptom of PTSD, reckless and self-destructive behavior by engaging in this fighting, it's like she's sort of microdosing her trauma. Like so much of her trauma is about combat. So yeah. what does it mean to choose to expose yourself to that and see if there's a different outcome? And so I think what I think about is what are new things you can be doing that might increase closeness with people you want to be close with, with people who are safe, with people who will help further your growth versus staying in environments that actually aren't serving you anymore. Yeah. And I think in some ways we see that with Cora and Toph, right? That Cora is seeing someone who she can try something different with in terms of how she's connecting. And then we get that beautiful moment with the banyan tree where she is able to connect to the world again and then is found by community she cares about and is able to feel the joy of being in community again. Such a good metaphor. It's just and so we're like, talking about time, moments that make me cry in this series. That God. is one of them. Yes, and it that was also a very interesting moment because so research on psychedelics and PTSD is still pretty early on and nascent. And one of the ideas is that feeling connected to the world, which is a property of some of the psychedelics that are being used in the treatment, is healing. And so I was like. Oh, Cora, I see what you're doing. <laughs> like, <woo. laughs> like, there's so many connections here. It's so interesting. Uh, and it's true, too. Like, thinking about it, like, from you mentioned one of the very early on, like, spiritual wounding is part of this, too. And we see in this world, the spirit realm is very uh, tangible, right? And so, part of it is the spirits who are helping her heal and thinking about how that is incorporated here right her her healing like we tried doing everything in this like i can do it at mint mm -hmm. like at and it got to the point where there was a spiritual intervention right and yeah. I, that's a really I, i'm curious what your thoughts are on that so i will say in general spiritual trauma is not an area of trauma as i'm as familiar with what i'm more familiar with is in my clinical work the ways religion and spirituality can show up in people who have been traumatized and that can often then mean feeling really isolated from their ability to engage in the religious and spiritual beliefs that are meaningful to them because of what they then think about themselves um, and again, I'm thinking specifically of veterans and Cora then as a warrior, what does it mean to fight or take a life? If you are someone who very strongly believes in like the sanctity of life in thou shalt not kill, what does it mean to be in a war where you have to? And that can be incredible 
incredibly spiritually damaging. And also like, even if you are like a very rigid, like cognitive behavioral therapist, who's like, I'm not going to talk about religion or spirituality. There are still incredibly tangible cognitions of like, there's no point in me getting better. I am damned that people can experience. And so I think what is then so interesting about the, the deep presence of the spiritual world in Korah is it highlights to us that people's religion and spirituality is deeply important in their healing and recovery process, if that matters to them. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Uh, well, we are coming up. <laughs> the main core of our conversation is, is, is going to be wrapping up here soon. And so uh, is there anything else we really want to highlight before we jump to the next sections of our episode today? The one last thing I want to talk about, and I'm, I'm, I really think um, season four, episode four is the episode that's going to linger with me the most. And it highlighted to me how young all of these characters are. And I'm specifically thinking of Aang's son, whose name I'm blanking on. Look. Milo. Kinsey's son, right? Wait. Yes, yes, sorry. Yes, Milo with the eyebrows. Um, and <laughs> I just want to take a moment to talk about being young and being a warrior. Yeah. And I think especially with Milo, we can really see a reflection across generations of veterans of what it means to enlist when you are 17 or 18 and you are you are young you don't have much experience with the world and I I know so many veterans who have said like I was a child and then I was put in war and they often will say I thought I knew what war was right my father my grandfather served in world war ii war was righteous and then modern day war isn't Modern day war can feel really pointless. Um, it can be damaging because all of a sudden you maybe realize you are not doing the thing you thought you were. I have had veterans say, and then I realized I was the Imperial stormtrooper when I was in Iraq. Oof. Like, and all of the things I thought I was doing, I thought I was serving my country, I thought I was serving the world. And here I am now at like 20, just completely undone by my experiences. And I want to think about that both with Milo's sort of deep engagement with masculinity in that in that episode of like, I'm the man, I'll find things, I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. And also with Cora as like trying to figure out who she is, having gone through all of these experiences of battle and knowing there's more ahead. And I think thinking about youngness and like being enlisted into these massive fights and what that does for your development of self. Um, and also, and maybe more of a meta way, what does it mean that we as a society are so enthralled by narratives of warriors when so few people serve in the military, when so few, few people have experiences understanding the impacts of war on people? And how does that then valorize war and continue a cycle that contributes to harm being done to people. Oof. Yeah. So a real a real downer note to end on. 
it's it's real and i i mean it it just begs the question i guess for for why like what was there not a better option and i think we talked about that sunshine when we had that episode um of who who might we have sent instead of the children but um but it's interesting because i mean that's that's milo that's uh these air nomads but that also really reflects Sokka in the very beginning of the series of 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 avatar yeah getting these toddlers and these six-year-olds trying to prepare them for the fire nation to come and like yeah is it it's uh it i recently wrote an article on that. if anyone's curious you are welcome to read it on our blog <laughs> yeah. and just the bleakness of the fact that so often the people most impacted by war are young and we know that trauma at a young age does more damage because your brain is still so malleable. Yeah. And what does it mean that we put all of the burden of war on our young people? Yeah. And also naming that while Milo is younger than Cora, Cora at this point with Zaheer was 18 years old. Yeah. And so. Right. How many 18 year olds do we send into battle not properly equipping them and then not properly treating them when they get back. Yeah. Something for us to think about. All right. Well, what I'd love to do is bring us into a little short break musical interlude for our listeners. And we'll be right back to do our final couple of segments. So stay tuned. back from our break we are jumping straight into twee and law uh but we're doing it uh, over the course of kind of the entire series at this point because of the conversation we've had today so what are some things that that push y'all away and pull you in uh to the series as a whole or specific moments that are just really memorable ones to you Addie, i'm gonna i'm gonna hand it to you if you're ready yes i think for my push I'm going to go a little overarching and say that for me, I struggle with watching TV in general. It's just not a medium that particularly works for my brain and how I consume stories. And so there was, it was a little difficult <laughs> to just yeah. watch and like take in all of the information and try and understand like, how is this visual choice related to this, related to this? Like I said, I'm really bad at watching TV. <laughs> and so that was just one of those things that I had to keep working through to actually engage with the material. So it did make me feel a little distant. Yeah. I would love a written version of these. And it's just to, to get the extra things that, how would the authors like write some of these things and what are the words they would choose would be really interesting life you don't like 
you don't get extensive voiceover narration. So you don't get to see the internal experience. And I think for me, internality and that internal experience is what like drags me into stories the most and makes them hit the hardest for me. Well, you should check out the Kiyoshi novels. Ooh. And, uh, they recently have published three uh, novels that are in the Avatar verse. One following out, two of them following Avatar Kiyoshi, and one following Avatar Yang Chen. Um, Ooh, those are super Love cool. A book. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know something that pushes me away about all of this is. And and I guess this is getting a little meta with with fandom too. But again, I I just am re- reminded of our culture's just distaste for women, frankly. And it's so frustrating to me that we are that this story is being told with Cora as as the protagonist. And I and I am so like grateful for this. And I'm just also really frustrated with people who are just like this is a person and it's like i i, I don't know I, I guess i'm just pushed away by by the fandom's reaction to this because it's just so good and it's done so well and there are so many really beautiful moments in this that um people seem to struggle with and so i just am kind of pushed away by the feeling that creates in me and Misogyny in fandoms is so real. And I think we can see that in so many popular fandoms. Um, The example that popped into my mind was Ginny Weasley in Harry Potter. There's intense fandom misogyny toward her. Um, And like, fuck turfs. (laughs) But like, Harry Potter can like tell us a lot about culture still, which is like the entire premise of Witch Please. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for cursing. It is really- it, it's tough because I think my push too is that it's uh it's in it it ties in a little bit with what you're saying, Ben, is the understanding that there are kids that go through multiple traumas the way that Cora goes through multiple traumas. And it doesn't mean that it's not losing bending, but what is the real life equivalent of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people engage in fandoms and see people respond to Cora's experiences in that way then what what is the internal feeling that that is creating with others who have gone through similar traumas who relate to cora and saying oh i can't then share that experience with these people um or am i bad because you're saying cora's bad because of the traumas that i went through or or at fault i think one of you mentioned um earlier that there are people who blame cora for her uncle's abuse of her And, like, again, not to be too much of a bummer, but, like, the number one thing so many survivors of sexual abuse here is, like, how did you lead them on, right? Like, and especially for survivors of sexual abuse from family members, like, there can be so much blame that even hearing it in a non-sexual abuse setting can increase shame and stigma and instead what people need to hear is like you are not at fault for what other people have done to you like you do not hold some of this some blame you do not hold any blame like undoing those cognitions of self-blame is a really important part of ptsd treatment and so yeah that like what are people hearing in the discourse around 
Cora and how does that hurt them is such a real push. Yeah, for sure. Well, now as we jump into push. what is pulling us, yeah, what is yeah, pulling us pulling into, the, uh, <laughs> into the episodes? For me, it was the real, the realness of the trauma recovery. They're mm-hmm. like watching Cora go through this healing and recovery process felt so real and just I felt so connected with her in those moments and I felt so connected with Cora and Toph as like the in-universe version of therapists and like like I said like even thinking about how my own therapeutic style has developed to be somewhere in between them I just it was such a pull in I felt so connected I was like yes yes this is my experience yeah incredible oh it's so good I one of my favorite episodes in the whole series is Cora alone mm-hmm. it is an incredible episode of television <laughs> and and I just fell in love again every time I wa- like when I watched it this season just it's it's brilliant and it's it's exactly what you're saying I completely agree it's just so real and I love it <laughs> and it's it's aimed at kids and young adults yeah. which is so powerful because that's a demographic that experiences a lot of trauma and is often not given models of recovery or understanding what has happened to them and it is so powerful to equip people with that kind of knowledge right here sunshine what about you i'm a sucker for for media that is about belonging and where people discover that they're like worthy of love and have value uh it makes me cry almost every time i see it especially when it happens to the kids and, and young adults uh, getting to experience that. And so there are so many moments throughout that series of people understanding that they have value and that they are worthy of love. And it doesn't necessarily come from some innate skill like bending, but that it exists in them already. And I think that that's always something that I, this, whether it was Avatar, Legend of Korra, that feeling comes up several times. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, tween law. Well, <laughs> us let's jump straight to devotion uh we're doing it a little bit differently because this is a bonus bonus episode where we don't have a specific element we're looking at it but we are still looking at trauma and so what is what is a practice something we can do in the next week to to support what we've talked about today so i want us to think about the element of fire um so one of the metaphors i use with almost every single one of my trauma clients is that of a faulty smoke detector that after trauma we and our bodies and our minds do not want to go through something like that again and they become like a really sensitive smoke detector the kind that like you make toast and it goes off you take a hot shower and it goes off and part of the process of recovery is starting to recognize when there's fire and when you're taking a hot shower Mm. right that You need to relearn what are danger cues because right now everything feels dangerous. And so I think my devotion for the week is really trying to be mindful of being in the present, right? Trauma can pull us back into the past, can cause us to time travel into the past and read our cues in the present as if we're back in that moment of trauma. Yeah. And so I'm thinking of fire and mindfulness and being present in the moment to determine if there's actually the danger of fire 
or if you're doing something pleasurable that is just giving you danger cues because you are so desperately trying to protect yourself. I love that. And so it's, uh, it, this is actually really close to mine. I like, I was thinking about earth actually. So uh, it's similar, but different, but similar premise in that I was going to move into mindfulness as a, as a practice of how do I stay present in this moment? Mm-hmm. Because I, and I was thinking about grounding. Yes. And, um, so thinking about specific, like, it's really nice outside uh, around here nowadays. It's been warm for the past couple of days, I should say. And like going outside and walking with bare feet onto the ground and feeling the ground beneath me. Like every time I do that, I'm like, I am very in the moment. I am Mm -hmm. very present. I'm, um, I'm not thinking about really anything else because I'm paying attention to the feeling of my feet in the grass and my feet on the ground. Um, And I, it just reminds me of the importance of really taking a minute to think about how that connects me to the world. So thinking about how nature is a way of like being in nature is just a reminder sometimes for me mm-hmm. personally that, uh, that there's a pretty big world. There's awe and wonder of like, wow, I'm here and I'm a part of this. And so I, I guess that's what I'm going to do for me. Cause I think when I think about community, I think about that's a great way, even when I am by myself from other people to still feel connected and to feel community with nature. And so non-human kin, yeah, um, which is a term I've seen a lot in indigenous spaces. Yeah. Yes. Here, here. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to be thinking about is how can I make sure that I spend some time outside with my, my shoes and socks off and just communing. I'm jealous it's warm enough that you can have shoes and socks off. (laughs) It's 30 something degrees up here. Yikes. (laughs) It was that on Monday. So, hey, maybe in five days. (laughs) This is true. You you can have the same uh, climate change, unfortunately, that we are going through. Um, I think for me, so last night I went to uh, a restaurant where we all, one of the ones where the the grill is actually in the center of the table. Um, And so... Uh, that sense of community we talked about and how that can support that is, is what am I doing to create that warmth and, 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 um, and sense of community and and the interactions that I have with people, especially those who come and share vulnerable moments with me. Um, Because, you know, we're sitting there, we're passing food, we're cooking for each other. We're, we're sharing opinions on what we like and we don't like, and it's just this time that felt very safe uh, and, and felt very warming and so how do I replicate that for, for others throughout the course of this week, especially when we know that that sense of community uh, really can benefit those, whether it is a small wound that we're talking about, like at the beginning of the episode, or whether one much larger, how do we create those, those feelings that can allow the healing process to at least start or, or feel comfortable in those moments. So mm. that's my goal. Mm. Well, we all have great goals. Uh, I'm really excited for us to put these into practice. Um, I hope that our, our listeners are thinking about what they might do this week too. Um, maybe an element come in light of our conversation is helpful for you to think about, but since we can't hear you thinking about that, what we're going to do is move straight on to gratitude and gratitude is, uh, the best segment we do. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and 
throw it to you, Abby. Who is a character from from our conversation or from from what you what you watched or what you kind of grappled with uh, that you're thankful for, and why are you thankful for them? I feel like I'm going to go with the most obvious answer, and I'm doing it anyway. Cora, I am so grateful that there are so many people who have a model of what it means to go through trauma and to heal and to move through recovery and that it's not easy, that it's not linear, that it's, it's a challenge. It's a slog. It is so hard to heal from trauma. It is so hard to engage in PTSD treatment. They are incredibly demanding treatments that involve a lot of work outside of session And to have a character who does that, who finds her way back to feeling connected to her values, to her community, not only am I grateful for her, I'm grateful that she exists for some some person who needs that in their life, that this is now a character that exists where I can't think of a lot that existed before. Um, And that, that means a lot. I love Cora. <laughs> Gosh, I'm I'm so grateful for this show. Mm-hmm. Sunshine, who are you grateful for? Ben, you, you talked about uh, empathetic misses earlier this episode, and no one gives us more empathetic misses than Tenzin uh, throughout the course <laughs> of the series. Um, and that is a character that continues to learn and grow yes. and, and, and learn from the mistakes that he makes and shows up over and over again, even when it's imperfectly. Um, he still is always showing up to be supportive. Yeah. And I have all the gratitude in the world for, for Tenson. Um, and he makes less empathetic misses over the course of or empathic misses over the course of the series, which is like, yeah, good for Tenson. Especially in light of this moment that Addie brought up, right, of the end of season three of book three, where, you know, we've got you, the air, the air nomads, the air community has you, and we are going to make sure that you have time to do what you need to do. Also, we will all make empathic misses, right? (laughs) Right, like part of our journey as people is learning how to recover from them, learning how to rebuild a relationship when you've caused a little rupture and having a character who makes mistakes and learns and grows is another deeply important model yeah. for all oh, of yeah. us to see. Yeah. Ben, what about for you? Oh, I want to be grateful for everyone. <laughs> I, I, I guess in light of our conversation, the, the people I'm thinking about are, are Katara and Toph, right? Are our elders, right? The 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 people who have this ancestral wisdom, who are are leaning into what it looks like to care for for people, and we see two completely different methods, and both are incredibly important and incredibly necessary. And I I, I loved hearing your kind of journey with that Addy because I like I also heavily lean towards the Katara model in my my own practice and I find that I struggle with maintaining or bringing in that Toth energy because 
and I think part of that is tainted by the way that like Toph like also doesn't do it perfectly <laughs> right and so like I I struggle with like this is good but also like not good and yet it is so incredibly important and so I, I guess I'm really grateful for for both and in this situation like having Toph as a as a teacher and having Katara as a teacher and learning from both of them is what I'm really grateful for right now. I think that that's incredibly helpful. I love that you use the word elders because I also think that severing connection with our elders is a way of destroying community and has often been a tool of destroying communities and genocide. And yep, so yep. like cherish your elders, connect with them and learn from them because that is a way to maintain community in the face of oppression. And we see the benefit from the show. So <laughs> um, we are grateful for The Legend of Korra. Addie, we are grateful for you. We are just in, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm so happy I got to do yeah. this. I've enjoyed talking with you both so much. And I'm so sad we're almost done. <laughs> almost done. But, but, but in case other people want to continue this conversation, if you would like to be found, how would you like to be found? So you can find me on Twitter. I actually, let me make sure I know what my handle is on Twitter. You can tell yeah. I use it so much. Um, it is my very professional Twitter. Um, so you, I don't tweet a lot. I really only tweet when I do something professional, but you can find me there at A, N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, E-R-I-A. N is in Nancy, S is in Sam. Um, I will love hearing your thoughts on this episode. Um, and yeah, it's a I'm a boring Twitter follow, but I exist. <laughs> yeah. And then are you working on anything cool that you'd like to, to share? Not right now. And what I would like to promote is yeah. finding ways to engage in values-directed behavior. So I think I've said before that a value that's really, really important to me is social justice. Mm -hmm. And so I want to take a moment to shout out all of the many ways we can be engaging in social justice right now. There are a lot of threats in the United States to our collective rights and well-being on so many different levels. We're looking at racism. We're looking at colonialism. We're looking at restricting access to reproductive health. We're looking at the total disenfranchisement and elimination of LGBTQ plus communities. And that can feel really, really overwhelming. And taking a single step to get involved in something that matters to you to make the world a better place is always worthwhile. And so I want to take a moment to plug doing something that way, however that looks like for you. And if you need help finding a direction, um, find me on Twitter. We can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yes, retweet, ditto, all the things. <laughs> Because yeah, oh, I, mean, I don't really have a podcast. I, I don't have any like I just had a publication come out on uh, uh, mental health disparities in um, different racial groups among veterans. But like, I don't have anything to really promote. So like, go do good in the world. Go do good in the world. Here, here. Like that is the premise of the podcast. Go, yes. go do good in the world. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, speaking of our podcast, you can find all of our social medias at bnb underscore pod 
Uh, we are on all the things. So TikTok to Instagram to Twitter, uh, mostly on Twitter and TikTok nowadays. However, most of our content on TikTok is Sunshine talking about movies. Watching a lot of Nicolas Cage is what's currently happening. But, you know. You excited for the new Dracula Nicolas Cage situation that's happening? Yeah, I totally don't already have tickets. Yeah, <laughs> of, course. of course. April 14th. Oh, man. All right. Well, everyone, if you are curious about also since it came up, some of the writing I've been doing has really been focusing on some of the themes that we've been talking about. And if you're curious, you can follow the Bending Not Breaking uh, newsletter that's been going out. And I love it. It's pretty great. You should check it out um, on Substack, BNB underscore pod. And with that in mind, Addy, thank you one more time. This has been a joy. Thank you. This has been an absolute delight and it's going to be the highlight of my weekend. Woohoo! Fantastic. Uh, that brings us to a close. Yeah, I'm Sunshine. I'm Ben. And this has been Bending Not Breaking. Thank you for listening.